If you have a Bible, let's open up to John chapter 15. Appreciated Daniel coming last week and filling in and giving me a break. And as we went to John, the, his revelation that he wrote later in life, and we looked at the, the throne room of heaven and the worship that just exists that is going on now and always will go on. And we were reminded that that worship is eternal and we are called into it. This morning we're going to look at John chapter 15. We're going to look at verses 12 through 17 this morning. And so feel free to open up. If you have no idea where John is, it's okay. Feel free to use the table of contents. It's in the New Testament. You also have a pew Bible there in front of you. If you do not have a Bible of your own, there's some blue ones that you can grab on the way out. Please grab one of those, write your name in it, take it with you as our gift. We're going to be in the Gospel of John, so go to the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, then John. Look for the number 15 at the top. That'll be our chapter. Look for the little number 12. That's the verse that we're going to be in. As we just carry on with this Gospel account, as we've looked at the beginning of the year, verse by verse, chunk by chunk, as we move through this morning. So John chapter 15, 12 to 17. Remember, the way the Bible works, the Old Testament says somebody's coming. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the Gospel account, say someone's here right now. The whole rest of the New Testament says someone's coming again. So we're in the Gospel of John, so this, this whole Gospel is saying this person is here right now. And who is that someone? The Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, the promised Redeemer. While you're opening up there, I want to tell you a, a story from a book that I read that changed the way I see people. It was just a really impactful book for me. It's one that's always stood out, and I'm going to tell you about one particular passage that has always just kind of stuck with me. The name of the book is Same Kind of Different as Me, written by Ron Hall. It's a great book. The book is better than the movie. Sadly, the movie came out. The movie was kind of, eh, it was kind of a dud. But I recommend the book to you. It's a great book. It's called Same Kind of Different as Me. And in that book, you meet this Caucasian family, the Hall family. You meet Ron and his wife, Debbie, and they have some kids. He's an art dealer. But you also meet a poor African-American sharecropper son named Denver. And they meet at a homeless shelter where the Halls are, are volunteering there, and they meet this man named Denver. And the whole book is about how they become friends and how this relationship grows. It's actually a, a true story, which is amazing when you think about it. And there's one scene in particular in that book that has always stuck with me. And it's a conversation between Denver and between Ron. And here's what he's saying. They're talking about going fishing. Denver says, I heard that when white folks go fishing, they do something called catch and release. Ron says, catch and release? I nodded solemnly, suddenly nervous and curious at the same time. That really bothers me, Denver went on. I just can't figure it out. Because when we go fishing, we are really proud of what we catch, and we take it and we show it off to everybody that'll look. Then we eat what we catch. In other words, we use it to sustain us. So it really bothers me that white folks would go to all the trouble to catch a fish, and then when, they're done, then when they've caught it, they just throw it back in the water. He paused again, and the silence between us stretched a full minute. And then he said, Did you hear what I said? I nodded, afraid to speak, afraid to offend. Denver looked away, searching the blue autumn sky, then looked, on, looked at me again with that drill-bit stare. So, Mr. Ron, it occurred to me, if you're fishing for a friend, you're just going to catch and release, then I've got no desire to be your friend. I returned Denver's gaze with what I hoped was a receptive expression and hung on. Suddenly his eyes gentled and he spoke more softly than before. But if you're looking for a real friend, I'll be one forever. That passage has just always stuck with me. The idea of 
catch-and-release friendships versus real friendships that sustain and last. And you think about this morning, what's the value of friendship in your life? What are the value of relationships in your life this morning? Are they worth the effort to build and sustain? What's the value of friendship and relationships in your life? Over and over again, as we kind of survey culture, I've seen articles, TED Talks, news reports, all these things that come out that mention the growing loneliness epidemic in our modern culture. It was called a silent epidemic in a 2015 study. And one thing that I have noticed from, we've lived in a bunch of different states and a bunch of different towns and ministered on a college campus in a big city, now in a small town, The thing that I have mentioned over and over again and I have noticed is that increasingly people don't know how to make new friends. People don't know how to make friends. Despite the rise in technology that allows us to stay easily connected, you think about social media, you think about Zoom, there's just this growing loneliness epidemic as people don't know how to make friends. And it's interesting, as I was on a college campus and even as I'm here in town, when I meet somebody new and I talk with them, you may have even heard me say this, I've gotten to the point where now I look at other grown-ups and say, hey, I would love to be your friend if you would let me. I would just love to be your friend. Let's hang out sometime. Let's be friends. You think about what's going on here and, and why it's so hard to make friends in this culture, despite all the, the facts that we have all the tools at our disposal. We ask the question, why? Relationships are hard. They're sometimes awkward when they develop, and they're often really messy and inconvenient. Here's what Tim Lane said in his book, great book, called Relationships, A Mess Worth Making. You can probably tell where he's going in that book. Here's what Tim Lane said. He asked, what is a relationship? He said, the intersection of the stories of two people. The problem is that an awful lot of carnage takes place at that intersection. He goes on to say, relationships will push you beyond the limits of your ability to love, serve, and forgive. They will push you beyond you. At times they will beat at the borders of your faith. At times they will exhaust you. In certain situations, your relationships will leave you disappointed and discouraged. They will require what you do not seem to have. But that is exactly as God intended it. That is precisely why he placed these demanding relationships in the middle of the process of sanctification where God progressively molds us into the likeness of Jesus, end quote. Talking about how these messy, hard relationships, God uses them to conform us more and more to the image of Christ. They're all part of the sanctification process. Two weeks ago, we looked at the passage, John 15, 1 through 11, talked about abiding in Christ, this union with Christ theologically that we talked about. We saw that the the source of our fruitfulness is union with Christ, The process of our fruitfulness is the work of the Holy Spirit in our sanctification as we are being conformed more and more to the image of Christ over time. And the goal of our fruitfulness is the glory of God the Father and our joy in Him. We saw that in verse 11, which is the verse right before the one we're going to look at this morning. The big picture of of two weeks ago in that passage, verses 1 through 11, is the relationship between the vine, Christ, and the branches, us. And so look at verse 5 there in chapter 15. We saw this two weeks ago. He says, I'm the vine, you're the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Sounds a lot like our memory verse, doesn't it? Hmm. This week, what we're going to look at. So two weeks ago, we saw the relationship of the branches to the vine. This week, we're going to talk about the relationship of the branches to the other branches. 
That's what we're talking about. Next week, we're going to see the relationship of the vine and the branches as a unit to the world around. So this morning, we're looking at the relationship of the branches to the branches, basically Christians to Christians. So buckle up. Here we go. The big question this morning is, what should relationships among the branches, among believers, look like according to Jesus? What do those relationships look like? What are some things we can point to? That's the big question we're going to look at. Let's find out this morning as we look at John chapter 15, starting in verse 12. Let's give attention to the reading of God's eternal and unchangeable word. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone, someone lays down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you, that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you, so that you will love one another. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray and ask the Holy Spirit's help as we need to receive this word by faith. Please pray with me. Lord, we come to you with expectant hearts, with our Bibles open, and we pray, O oh Lord, that you would speak to us through your word. Remind us of who you are and how you've called us to live. And we thank you for your mercy and your grace and the great love with which you loved us. That even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, you moved towards us. Lord, we pray that you would please meet us here. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, so this morning, remember, we're asking the big question, what should those relationships among the branches look like? What are some things we can point to? Before I give you the points this morning, I want to read something that Kent Hughes said. He said, some Christians would give anything for one good friend. Friendship is important. The principles in John 15, 12 to 17 apply to everyone, to those who have friends and to those who feel they do not, to the aggressive, the outgoing, the shy, because these principles govern both the initiation, the reception, and the maintenance of friendship. And as friendship develops, these principles take us into a deeper and deeper relationship. So he says there's these principles that exist. So the question then becomes, okay, well, what are the principles that we see in John 15, 12 to 17? I'm glad you asked. Those are going to be our three main points this morning. Number one, we're going to see a mutual relationship to the vine. So how do these branch-on-branch branch branch kind of relationships work? What are the principles? Number one, we see a mutual relationship to the vine. Number two, we see a mutual self-sacrifice. Mutual self-sacrifice. And finally, number three, a mutual seeking of success. Okay, so let's look at that first one. I'll, I'll, I'll reiterate them as we go through. Let's look at that first point, a mutual relationship to the vine. This is found in verses 14 through the first part of verse 16. And you think, man, you just skipped over some verses. I know. I'm doing it on purpose. You'll notice that I'm starting in the middle of the passage. This passage is laid out in what is known as a chiasm. C-H-I-A-S-M, after the Greek letter chi, which is the X. So it's a chiasm. So what it, what, the way it's set up is the first and last lines mirror each other. The next two in kind of relate to each other, but then the central portion is the heart of the passage that helps the others make sense. That's kind of how a chiasm works. It's like a V. And so the bottom of the V is what is, is really the heart of the text. 
And so let's go right to uh, verse 15 and the first part of verse 16. This is the hub of today's passage. Let's read this, starting in verse 15. It says, No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what the master is doing, but I've called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you. You see, in the ancient Near Eastern culture of Jesus' day, slaves were seen as objects, not people. Aristotle put them on the same level as agricultural implements. It was like, that one's a rake, or this one's a shovel. You know, they were seen as inanimate objects. And so because of that, the, the masters over the slaves did not share their thoughts or lives with their slaves. There was this impenetrable wall that exists. You know, you're almost like an inanimate object in, in the ancient Near East. And so obviously there was no relationship there. And what you see, notice how Jesus speaks of his disciples. He says, I don't call you slaves, I call you friends. The Greek word here is philos, so Philadelphia, I call you brothers, this love. This, that's where that Greek word philos is used here. And we're told that Jesus shared deep personal thoughts with these men, that no barriers existed between them. Basically, all that I have received from my Father, I pass along to you. There isn't this wall. You're my friends, you're my brothers, you're with me. And you think, what bound these people together? The first clause of verse 16. You, you did not choose me, but I chose you. Again, we see the doctrines of grace at work in the Gospel of John with this doctrine of election. God is moving. You didn't choose me. I chose you. I went to you. When you were dead in your trespasses and sins, when you were living life, you didn't even know I existed. And I went and I called your name. And we now have a shared connection to the vine. They had a shared connection to the good shepherd who called them. Remember, we've seen earlier in the Gospel of John, my sheep know me and they hear my voice. That when I call them, they know my voice. And so what did these men have in common? As we're thinking about the upper room discourse, they had been called by the good shepherd and they had a common union with Christ as the true branch, the shared connection. They were, in all intents and purposes, a gathering of the summoned ones. The Greek word there is ekklesia, the called out ones. They were a gathering of those who were summoned, those who were united to Christ by faith, those who shared the same goals, outlook, and had the same Holy Spirit at work inside of them. And this shared connection to the vine was not brought about by their own effort or by their social standing. It was freely given to them by grace. Remember, as Jesus is calling his disciples, what does he say? Follow me. And they hear his voice and they follow him. The shepherd called them. The Holy Spirit regenerated them. And they responded in faith to who Christ claimed to be. Remember, this is the thing that has been getting Jesus in trouble since the very beginning of this gospel account. Jesus says, I am the Son of God. And here's all these miracles and signs and wonders that I do. But that, remember, that's the thing that got him in trouble with the Pharisees. Him claiming to be the Son of God. I am God in flesh. And what these men had in common and what we have in common as the church is we have this union to Christ as we have trusted by faith in who He says that He is. We believe that Jesus is the Son of God. We cannot blink on that. And so we're united to Christ just like these disciples were. United to the vine by faith. 
We believe that Jesus is the only Son of God and the only Savior of sinners. There's no other name. We cling to that. Because what do we understand about ourselves? We're the called out ones, aren't we? How would your relationships with others change if you saw them as fellow branches united to the same vine? How do you think your relationship with other believers... Remember, we're talking branches and branches. Next week, we're talking about branches and vine to the world. Today, we're talking about branches and branches. How do you think your relationships with others would change if you saw them as fellow branches united to the same vine? As fellow branches with the same Savior the same spiritual goals, and the same ultimate destination. You do realize that because of Jesus, we're all going to be in heaven together. Which is amazing when you think about it. Fellow people in process on the way to the same spiritual house. Remember, Jesus said, I'm going to go and prepare a place for you in my Father's house. There's many rooms. So we're all moving towards the same place. And this informs how we read verse 14. Look at verse 14. Where Jesus said, you are my friends if you do what I command you. Again, here's what Kent Hughes said. He was really helpful. He said, Jesus' friends obey him because they share the same outlook and goals. Close friends agree in heart. They will sometimes disagree, but their heart's aims are the same. So we think about what Jesus is describing here, and we think about the vine and the branches and how we're all connected. You see, today we are the ecclesia. We are a gathering of the summoned and called ones. That is the church. We have been called by the Good Shepherd. We have been regenerated. We have been united to the vine by faith, but also united to each other as fellow branches, part of the same plant. It's the amazing thing about that metaphor that Jesus is using here. And this is the amazing thing about the church if you really think about it, okay? We have been given to each other in love, according to the providence of God, and we have been commanded to love one another. That's the bookends of the passage, right? Verse 11, verse, or verse 12, and verse 17, they're bookends, and we're commanded to love each other. But this is not always just a warm and fuzzy Hollywood concept of love. I think a lot of times Hollywood has kind of hijacked that word where it's a warm and fuzzy feeling. What Jesus is calling us to is something better than that, but something that's actually harder than just the warm and fuzzy feeling. So, that's our second point, that these relationships between the branches are to be marked by a mutual self-sacrifice. They're identified by a mutual union with the vine. You're a branch, I'm a branch, we're all branches, but we're united to the same vine. But then how do these relationships look? According to Jesus, a mutual self-sacrifice. That's our second point in verses 12 and 13. Remember, kind of moving out from the heart of the passage. Remember, Jesus is speaking to the disciples in the upper room on the night before his betrayal, arrest, beating, and brutal death on the cross. We are in the shadow of the crucifixion right now. And after Christ reminded them of the importance of abiding in the vine that we looked at two weeks ago, and the resulting joy that accompanies that union in verse 11... He called them to do something hard. What is that? Look at verse 12 and 13. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. See, here's the thing about this mutual sacrifice and why it's so important. 
Mutual sacrifice is essential to genuine love, friendship, and relationships. But it's the thing we run away from and or often refuse to extend. Why? Because sin makes us really self-centered and selfish. We were built to kind of give our lives away in service. But sin has made us think inwardly only of ourselves first. And so verses 12 and 13 are essentially a restatement of the new commandment that we heard back in chapter 13, verses 34 and 35. And the hardest part of verse 12 is the phrase you may have picked up, as I have loved you. Look at what he says. This is my commandment that you love one another. How? As I have loved you. Where do you start? Where do you start? To love each other as Christ has loved us. I mean, where do you start? It's the same thought that permeates the submission passage in Ephesians 5.25 that everyone likes to gnash their teeth towards. It says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Where do you start? How can I possibly start loving my wife as Christ loved the church? How do I start? How could I possibly do that? There's no way when you think about it. Where do you start? There's a clear, clear takeaway here, especially I'm talking to the guys here. We can start by stepping our game up and playing hard to the whistle every single night, seeking out ways to help and serve and shepherd. We're called to set the tone. Set the tone in servant-hearted love in your families, in your jobs, wherever you are. Not by running away from opportunities to serve, but raising our hands and saying, Put me in, coach. I want to play hard to the whistle. I want you to even be praying now, men, about ways that you feel called, and maybe some of you, God might be calling you to serve as officers in the church, and be able to say, Lord, if you're calling me to that, help me to trust you, and put my hand up and say, Lord, I will do it. I will lay down my life for the sake of these folks, as you call me to. Let's set the tone in in the church, in our families, in our jobs. As my seminary professor said, from vocation to vacation and everything in between, all under the Lordship of Christ. Men, join with me and set the tone as we're called to love and to serve. You can think of all these different ways where we're called to lay down our lives in service, but yet it's so hard. Here's this quote that P.J. O'Rourke said. He said, everybody wants to save the world. Nobody wants to help mom do the dishes. It's true when you think about it. Everyone wants to save the world. No one wants to help mom do the dishes. So when you think about ways that you can serve in your families, we think, how can I help you? How can I serve you? We're supposed to go to bed tired every night. That's why it's called rest and sleep. We play hard to the whistle every single night. I will unload the dishwasher. Sure, I'll mop the floors. I'll help with that. How can I help you? How can I serve you? How can I love you in this way? You see, Christ calls us all to die to ourselves and to live for others as we follow in his footsteps. And the Greek word translated love here is the word agapao. It's the Greek verb. This is not the kissy parts of a movie type of love or just being nice to other people type of love. This Greek word agapao is marked by thinking of others before yourself. This is a thinking of self less type of love. It's a sacrificial type of love. Where do we get an example of this type of love in the Bible? Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through 5, the humiliation of Christ. It says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, 
but in humility. Count others more significant than yourselves. Look, let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in who? Christ Jesus. So who is the archetype? Jesus Christ our Lord, who calls us to follow in his footsteps. And so you think this idea of agapao, self-sacrificial love, where does it extend? How does it apply? It applies to our marriages, our friendships, our families, co-workers, neighbors, church, everything in between. And this is why this type of love is lifted, listed as the gateway to the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. Think about, but the fruit of the Spirit is what? Love, first one, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. It's a mark of the Spirit because this is something we can't produce on our own. It has to be given to us. And so it's a mark of the Spirit's work in your life as you're made more and more like Jesus over time. And see, Christians have always been marked by this type of love. Think about it through wars and persecution and plagues and natural disasters. Christians run in when everybody else run out at great expense to themselves. Think about when the Black Death was sweeping through and killed a third of the population. It was Christians who didn't shy away but moved in and cared for those who were going through the plague. Many of them contracting the plague in and of themselves and died caring for others. When that black death swept through and left untold numbers of children orphaned because their parents died, it was the Christians that moved in and said, I'll take these children at expense to myself. I will bring them in and care for them as my own family. You see, throughout the world, throughout world history, we've seen Christians running in when everybody else is running out. Why? Because Jesus calls us to do that. That's why. Think about an example that happened just a couple of years ago. You may have heard of a guy named Kent Brantley. He was a doctor with Samaritan's Purse, Samaritan's Purse in 2014. He contracted Ebola going into a place where Ebola was running rampant. He went in and cared for those who had Ebola, got Ebola in and of himself, and he was actually brought back to the United States and cared for and recuperated. But he was the guy that said, put me in. I've got the ability to help. Let me go help. And when the world, think about this, when we talk about how we're called to follow in Jesus' footsteps in this way. Why, why, why should we care? Because when the world was shaking its fist at Jesus, he willingly he sacrificially laid down his life to redeem his enemies and make them his friends. Why? Out of love. With the love in which he loved us. He laid down his life. I mean, look at verse 13. Greater love has no one than this, than someone lay down his life for his friends. We are in the shadow of the cross where Jesus is about to do this. And they'll know we are Christians by our what? By our selfishness? By our years-long grudges? By our self-interest? By our willingness to serve only when it's easy and convenient or makes us look good? Or when we have something to gain? By waiting around for others to come and serve us only when we get our way? No! They'll know we are Christians by our love, our laying down our lives. They'll know we are Christians by our self-sacrificial love. Why? We sang it in the opening song. 
because we're one in the Spirit. We are one in the Lord. We are united to the vine as fellow branches. And take a second and think about this. And I'm thinking about this too. How would your marriage or your family relationships or your workplaces or your neighborhoods, how would DeKalb County look different if we followed in Christ's footsteps in this way? How would your marriage look different if you were trying willingly to lay down your life? How would your family look different? How would your coworker, how would your job look different? How would your neighborhood look different? How would this church look different? How would DeKalb County look different if Christians were known by this type of love? It changed everything. If we loved others, what if, what if we loved others out of our own need for the gospel? What if we understand that I, who once was unlovable, was made lovely because of grace? What if we were able to love others out of our understanding of just how much we have already been loved in Christ? We've talked about it before. Why do we love? We love why? Because he first loved us. That's the way the gospel works. We have already been loved so much, and now we're called to love others out of that love. You see how, the, how it works. We're asking the question, how would all of those things look different if we were able to minister to others in that way? I bet it would look a lot like our final point, which is a mutual seeking of success. So it's not just a mutual relationship to divine a mutual self-sacrifice. It is a mutual seeking of success. Look at the second half of verse 16. Jesus said, uh, He says, You did not choose me, but I chose you. Why? And appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, He may give it to you. Again, here's what Kent Hughes said. He calls this the principle of promotion, is what he calls it. Here's what he said. Kind of a long quote, but hang, this is good. He said, in this verse, we see our Lord's desire to help his friends succeed. I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. He was committed to their fulfilling the ultimate in their calling. Friends rejoice in each other's successes. Many branches in the body of Christ have never reached their potential because no one ever encouraged them. Others would reach unimaginable heights if only someone would say, you know, you could really become something. No one has prayed for them, befriended them, or affirmed them. We're called to do just that. That is the principle of promotion. And so I want to ask a couple of questions here. How often do you go out of your way to verbally encourage others and build them up? Have you ever been over-encouraged? Where you're like, oh, please stop saying encouraging things. I've had enough. It's impossible. Have you ever been over-encouraged? It's impossible. So how often do you go and you use your mouth to verbally encourage others. You know what? I see you doing that. And I, I, you're doing great. I've seen how the Lord's been at work in your life. And I've seen how the Lord is using you in this church. Or I'm seeing how the Lord is using you in this area. Or you're just, I just like being around you. You're just kind. Thank you for being so kind. Thank you for being so welcoming. You know, how often do you go out of your way to just encourage other people? It brings life. You Don't you know when somebody encourages you, you just kind of like... Yes, it just brings life. It doesn't let people wither. It speaks words of life and grace to them. How often do you sincerely celebrate with others when something goes well for them instead of responding with jealousy or trying to one-up them? How often do you just go, man, that's great. Praise God. I'm so excited. That's great. Thank you for telling me. 
That's amazing news. How often do you willingly loosen your grip on the steering wheel of control to give someone else the joy of serving and give them a chance to grow in their, gri- in their gifts? How often do you let other people try, even if they don't do it the way that you think it should be done? How often do you just loosen your grip up and trust the Lord and let other people serve? If you're the only one that does it, you're robbing people of a chance to serve and use their gifts and develop. Loosen your grip as we work together. They might not do it exactly how you would. That's okay. It's good for them to try, and it's good for your sanctification. As Dr. Kara, my seminary professor, would always tell us, it's good for your sanctification. As you trust Christ and you loosen your grip, they're not going to do it the way that you're going to do it. They may not, you know, wash the dish the way that you would, or they may not put that thing together like you would, or they may not organize this the way you would. It's okay. Let them try. Let them serve. This is why the church is such a gift. It's not your mini kingdom. It's a group project. That's what the church is. It's a group project. We're all in this together. You're a branch. I'm a branch. I'm no better branch than you are. I need Jesus just like you. And so we work together. It's a group project. And over time, our sharp edges are knocked off as we live together and work for the glory of Christ. It's not always easy this side of heaven, but it's how the Lord built us, to be a body knit together and serving together. And so let's look for ways to actively encourage others and seek their success. As John F. Kennedy once said, the rising tide raises all boats. It's true. What is our prayer for Grace Prez as a session? What are we asking the Lord for? That we would look like a healthy plant that bears lots of fruit and is a blessing to all who come in contact with it. That we would be branches that seek the best for each other as we grow closer to Jesus together. That's it. We want to be a healthy plant that loves each other. And we then are a blessing to all those who come in contact with what the Lord's doing here at this church. Let's, a couple of quick applications here when we close down, okay? Landing gear's out, let's bring it in. Okay, Grace is known as a welcoming, friendly church. Thank you. Thank you. I have talked to many in this area who have attended other churches and never had another person even speak to them. What a tragedy. Thank you for being a loving and welcoming church. I've had people come to me and said, you know, I didn't know that I was going to have to stay an extra 15, 20 minutes after the worship service because I met everybody. And I've told them, I said, if you come to Grace, if you get one of us, you get us all. That's just the way it works. You get the whole family. Every bit of us. You get every one of us. So thank you for being loving and, and, and welcoming. Let's keep loving each other. Let's keep welcoming others in. You want to write two words down that you can take away? This is it. Gather and connect. Gather and connect. We want to bring others in and connect them to our existing family. We always have an extra seat at the table. We are never going to get to the point where we say, no, we're full. We don't have any room. We always have an extra seat at the table. In your friendship groups, is there an extra seat at the table? Or is your friendship group closed and nobody else can come in? There's always an extra seat. That's what Christians do. We bring people in and we connect them. Your friendship groups aren't closed. You always have an extra seat. Our church isn't closed. We always have an extra seat. Gather and connect. Gather and connect. 
Let's keep looking for ways to serve sacrificially in our church and our community. If you're not serving in the church and the community, then get off the bench and get in the game. There's ways for you to serve. Put me in, coach. Let's go. Let's do it. Let's love each other through the process. Let's stop griping about little stuff and take stock of how kind God has been to our church. We had a session meeting this past Wednesday. We spent a lot of time just thinking about all that God has done. I mean, think about this. This past 18 months has been tough for everybody, myself included. We all have regrets. I do. You do. They don't teach global pandemic in college, do they? They definitely don't teach it in seminary. I look back, woulda, shoulda, coulda. Yes, I know. It's been really hard. I get it. We've all felt lonely. We've all felt disconnected. We've all felt fearful. We've all been stretched thin. We've all had our feelings hurt. Me too. But think about this. God has been at work and watching over our little church. Think about this. We've made it through. If we can make it through that together, we can make it through anything. You think about we all have regrets. If you haven't felt loved, and especially by me, I'm sorry. That's all I can say. I'm really sorry. I'm just one guy. I'm sorry. I love you. I really do. Let's love each other. Let's care for each other. Let's bury old hatchets. Let's move forward. Think about, right now we don't need more negativity. We need, lo- we need love and encouragement. I had somebody tell me one time, before you cash in a gripe, think of three positive things that are going well. Before you cash that one in, think about three things that are going really well before you cash that gripe in. Think about this. We have grown through COVID. That makes no sense. No sense. God has brought us new families and visitors almost every week. Our nursery's busting at the seams. We're running out of space. It's a great problem. I know it's football season. Everybody's gone. But if everybody shows up on a Sunday, we're in trouble. It's a great problem to have. Our new downtown outreach space has been fully donated for a year to help us expand our ministry where people actually are. They're not coming to our parking lot. We need to go to them. And the, the small groups are getting started. list goes on and on and on. And you think about this. This makes no sense in the world's eyes. This church makes no sense. In a land of, you know, Baptists and Methodists and Pentecostals, we're the only, like, Reformed Presbyterian church, and we're still here. It makes no sense. No sense whatsoever. And we say, thank you, Lord. We say, thank you, Jesus, for all that you've done. God is at work. None of this makes any sense in the world's eyes, which is exactly why we give all glory to God and we say, thank you, Jesus. We rejoice and we're thankful. Let's love each other. Let's give each other the benefit of the doubt. Let's show each other grace and kindness. Let's forgive others as we ourselves have been forgiven. Let's ask the Lord to give us more of the fruit of the Spirit as we draw life from the vine. Let's ask Jesus, Lord, please give us more love, more joy, more peace, more patience, more kindness, more goodness, more faithfulness, more gentleness, more self-control. Why? Because we're one in the Spirit. We're united to Christ. We're one in the Lord. And they... DeKalb County, our surrounding area, will know that we are Christians by our love, by God's grace, with a lot of prayer, and with the help of the Holy Spirit. And you think, "Mm, I'm just not feeling that. The Lord Jesus Christ commands you to do it, and that's good enough. And we go before the Lord and we say, Lord, help me to obey you in this way. You have called me to love others. 
This is the amazing thing about the church. We've been given to each other in love. There's people in every church you ever go to, you'd never invite them to your Super Bowl party, but they've been given to you in Jesus, and you're called to love them, and it's good for you. And let's obey Christ in this way. He says, love one another as I have loved you. Where do we start? I don't know, but let's give it a rip. Let's try to love one another. They'll know we're Christians by our love. In short, let's just do what Jesus commands us to do, even if it's hard. And what is that? Verse 12. Let's read this as we close. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for your kindness and your mercy. Thank you for all the promises of God. Find their yes and amen in Christ. And Lord, we come before you with praise on our lips, trusting in your steadfast love trusting in your grace and your mercy. Lord, help us to repent of all the ways that we really just think of ourselves first. And Lord, help us to love others with a self-sacrificial love, especially others in the church and fellow believers as we want, the, want to see a, just a healthy plant grow. And we don't do that by cutting each other out. We do it, Lord, by seeking to serve and lay down our lives for others. And so, Lord, help us to obey you in this way as you've commanded us to. But Lord, we recognize that we can't do this on our own. That's why it's a gift of the Spirit. And so, Lord, please work this gift in us according to your grace. Help us to love one another as you have loved us first. That's the gospel, and it's good news. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.